0: Hello, listeners, I'm Rhonda Morris, Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer for Chevron, and I am delighted to formally announce that Chevron is the proud new sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast. Over the next several episodes, I'm looking forward to sharing why I believe the culture and leadership values we have at Chevron are so well aligned with the Lead from the Heart philosophy. And my hope is to have some of my colleagues take my place in voicing how they lead their teams in caring and supportive ways. I want you all to know that our partnership with Mark is both personal and special to me. Like many of you, I listen to podcasts in order to learn and grow. And even though I've worked for Chevron for 30 years and have managed people for over two decades, I'm still determined to discover ways to become an even better and more effective leader. Well, I've been listening to this podcast for a few years now. The first time I heard an episode, it was a Saturday night, and I was making potato leek soup for my family. And because I so enjoyed what I heard, I sent Mark a message on LinkedIn to tell him. To my surprise, Mark quickly responded to express his thanks, and he said he hoped the soup I was making turned out to be delicious. I'd never met Mark before, but the interaction seemed so natural, I decided to send him the recipe." Since that night, I've gone on to listen to almost every episode and frequently have shared many with my direct reports, peers, or leaders in our company. And while I'm guessing you may not know too much about Chevron, I've grown convinced that leading from the heart isn't just aligned to our views of leadership development. I believe it represents the future of leadership. At Chevron, we are prioritizing building strong leaders to safely deliver the energy the world needs today, not to mention the lower carbon energy systems of the future. We will accomplish this by inspiring our employees to strive for new solutions, push past challenges, and to think boldly to solve complex issues. Leadership has never played a more important role in organizations as it does today. And all of us at Chevron, especially me, are so excited to share our leadership journey with all of you. Thank you so much for listening. And now on to the show.
1: Hello everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley and you're listening to the lead from the heart podcast. At the end of the day, leadership is really about influencing achievement and attaining one's most important goals and objectives through people. And our guest today, over nearly four decades, has proved himself to be one of the world's greatest entrepreneurs and business managers. And he joins us to share insights into the life of a founder and CEO who had a great vision and then spent his life fulfilling it. Ron shake seems to have been put on the earth to be an entrepreneur. When as a college student, he realized that his campus needed a bodega, a small grocery store. He went and created one. And then he made it a profitable venture. After spending time operating a small chain of cafe bakeries in the Boston area, he dreamed of creating something unique. A restaurant chain that would intentionally make people feel special thorough in his planning process. I'll say extremely thorough. He visited restaurants across the United States to gain inspiration and guidance over a two year period. And then he went on to launch Panera Bread, a restaurant brand that today has more than 2,400 bakery cafes, 120,000 employees, and nearly 6 billion in annual sales. In his new book, Know What Matters, Lessons from a Lifetime of Transformations, Shake reveals with honesty and candor what it's like to live the entrepreneurial life and run a large corporation. And while he describes both the highs and the lows, this is a man who honestly has experienced far more wins than losses. Under Shake's leadership, Panera generated annualized returns of over 25% for multiple years and delivered a total shareholder return 44 times better than the S&P 500 in the same period. In 2017, he sold the business he created 37 years earlier for $7.5 billion. In upcoming episodes of the podcast, we'll be focusing on purpose and how to live a meaningful life. And Shaikh is truly the embodiment of this. He's also one who thrives in working 100-hour weeks, and despite his clear wealth, already has a new and very successful restaurant chain underway and largely under his direction. Ron Shaikh is undeniably an extraordinary leader, and my goal in our conversation will be to surface the practices, beliefs, philosophies, and qualities of one of the most successful restaurateurs America, at least, has ever seen. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Ron. Thank you, Mark. Good to speak to you today. And you as well. Let's get right to it. At the beginning of your book, you mentioned your father Mm. and how you were with him in the final months of his life. So it struck me that... This was important to you to begin your book this way. And you went on to say, and I'm going to quote you here, regardless of whether we believe in a God, most of us in our last month on this earth will ask ourselves some variation of the inevitable questions. Did I live the life I wanted to live? Did I fulfill my potential? And did I live a life I respect? So let me start with the first question. How did your father influence you in defining these values, like making you think this way?
2: Well, I watched him struggle retroactively with certain choices he'd made. And that compared to my mother, who as she was near her end, frankly, was a much greater peace. And it left me, Mark, with a view of the world that what matters is to determine today. And as you go through life, what you're going to feel at the end of your life. And you have that opportunity. I've said, look, I don't want to be doing a post-mortem in the ninth inning with two outs. I want to be looking at my life proactively in the third inning, the fifth inning, the seventh inning, and building a life that at least to me has meaning to me and is a life that I can respect. That's ultimately what I think is about dying with peace.
1: Interestingly, my neighbor, we've lived in the same home for almost 25 years and she was across the street from us and she just died. And I went to see her two, three days right before she died. And she looked at me and she almost reiterated what you said, which is interesting because I'd already read your book, but she just said, you don't want to get to my state and regret anything, you know? And so it was just really powerful. Frame up the meaningful life that you've led. Where have you derived the greatest meaning? Obviously, you've had massive financial success, career success. To me, I break it down this way. I literally have gone away
2: every Christmas for a week, and I've sat down, and I said, where do I want to be five years from now, seven years, nine years from now in the context of my relationships with my family, my children, my friends? Where do I want to be in the context of my relationship with my body, my health, what I do and what I don't do? Where do I want to be in my relationship with my work? And what matters to me about my work? What doesn't? What am I trying to do with it? What has meaning to me? And then finally, I look at it in terms of my own spiritual development and what has meaning to me relative to that. And I take each of those boxes and I try to write what I would like to be able to say about myself in each of those four quadrants down the road. Five, seven, and ten years. And then I take that and I break it up. And I literally try to break it into what I want to get done in the next 12 months. And if I'm going to get it done in the next 12 months, what I want to get done in the next three, each quarter in the year. And I really write a path to getting to where I want to get to. And then I review it every quarter. How am I doing against that? And I don't get it all done. I get hopefully 75 or 80% of it done, but it holds me accountable to what I'm going to respect and what has meaning to me as I'm going through it. And it keeps my mind focused on what it is that matters to me, if I may say, and allows me to be less reactive and more proactive.
1: How did you learn to be that intentional? Your dad's influence couldn't have shaped that entire practice. I don't know.
2: I have to tell you, it was watching them and saying to myself, wow, I don't want to be in that place in that ninth inning. And my guess is you've lost your parents. were contemporaries. It really wakes you up. And I have always thought that the key to life is to be intentional. You know, if you get in a car, Mark, and you press the accelerator and you don't have your hands on the steering wheel, where do you go? In a circle. And that doesn't seem like any way to get anywhere. I personally think that life is a little bit more like surfing. You get out in the ocean, you choose a wave, and you try to decide, is that a wave that's going to take you far? And then you get on that wave, you paddle, and you try to get there. And- The point I'm trying to make is the first step in all of this is to define your intentions and then do everything you can to help you get to where you're trying to get to. And that seems to me to be logical and sensible in living a life that I respect, and that's the standard I use.
1: It is. I'm not so certain that many of us do those things. So that's why I wanted to explore it with you. And it was also something that I'm not sure where I read this, you would know. It may have been the Wall Street Journal, but it could have been somewhere else. But very recently, there was an article talking about that, you know, we set goals for ourselves and then we get bummed out and we don't hit like 100% of them. Yeah. And they quoted you. You were sourced for a quote and you said like, it's unrealistic to think that you're ever going to hit 100% of your goals. Sure. So speak to that because you said it was like 80%, I'm really happy. And I don't think most people... Have, you yeah, know,
2: I mean, listen, if we don't know where we're going, we're going nowhere. So let's start there. It's really simple. If all we're doing is reacting feeling and reacting. We're not propelling ourselves in any way. So I've always tried to come from where do I want to get to? Beyond that, when I start to set my own personal objectives, I try to be nice to myself. I want to get it done, but I also recognize that things happen and I'm human. I'll give you a a great metaphor. Think about baseball players, right? If they can hit 300, Ted Williams hit 400. He was doing great. Nobody hits a thousand. Nobody gets it all right. Right. The trick is to get up there and do some of what you're trying to do. Be nice to yourself and also hold yourself accountable. And that's a continuing evolving kind of thing. I want to say my book is often thought about as a business book, but it's really not. Almost everything that I use in business came to me from life first and got transferred into business. And the reality is this whole premortem. And then the process of setting key initiatives as an intention to be clear what you're trying to accomplish. That, to me, is simply a a linkage between the things that I find work in my personal life that I think also work in enterprises and organisms of of a
1: corporate nature. Well, I will say you wrote a really good book. Thank you, Mark. A lot of people, no criticism, just some people don't have it in them to actually express themselves wow. and write it. And so they'll hand off the information to, to somebody who's skilled at that, but it's yours. and You know what, Mark, Mark, just to interrupt you, I want to say one thing.
2: What I hope from this book, and I hope you got it, was I didn't want another one of these memoirs that you see on the business shelves that basically start with, I did so well, I'm so wonderful, all you have to do is be like me. I hated it. It felt to me disrespectful to the people reading it, untrue. And what I really wanted to talk about, and I really wrote this for, was my own kids and the companies that I work for and the people who I know are struggling with an entrepreneurial life, the people that are struggling in running large public companies as I did. I wrote it for the people that are trying to lead a life of some meaning and some self-respect. And I wanted to share with them what I had learned, really my kids and if people take something away, I'm, I'm pleased. The other thing I wanted from this book is I wanted to talk about the reality. I know you've been in corporate life. It's painful. It's hard. I can remember literally when I was in the middle of one of the massive transformations we executed at Panera. And we went through four of them and we can cover that. But one of them, I can remember, I was driving down Starrow Drive here in Boston and I thought to myself, I got six or seven billion of investors I got 125,000 employees. I don't want to let them down. It'd just be easier if I got hit by a car. Not that I wanted to die, but just that sense of over, of dominant responsibility. And, you know, there's an expression I use in the book. People think of guys like me as owning the business. No, the business owns you. And the question is, how do you deal with that? How do you make sense of that? And how do you process that?
1: Let me frame that up for people because this did definitely come through in your book. And you're right, I did. I spent most of my career in very senior levels of financial services. And so I know what that stress is like. But I don't know it at the level that you experienced it. And it felt like just in reading it, it was like, this guy is like constantly under great pressure to perform. And whether it's pleasing shareholders, ever increasing demands for growth, or you had ruthless activist investors, and then you decided, you know, we're going to transform the entire organization and redo the whole thing. And it always felt just like it's never ending. It's like, when do I get to celebrate my successes and enjoy the the. Empty here And so besides the huge payday you obviously got in selling Panera, was it all worth it to you in terms of just, you know, hundred-hour weeks and the intensity and the stress and the strain? Yeah, because I never thought of it in that way you just
2: described it as stress. I've experienced it as the burden of responsibility. And the truth of the matter is, to me, the payday wasn't the money. I did great. No no apologies for it. And I've done even better with the Kava IPO and a number of the other companies we have. I've continued to. What's the joy of it is the doing of the doing. It's actually figuring it out. There is nothing more fun than when you figured it out. You figured out the guest, you figured out the consumer, and your competitors haven't. It's just how I'm put together. I just always found it so intellectually interesting. And I found the people in business fascinating. What made them tick? How do you get people to care? How do you get people to see it's in their interest to do it? You know, there's a, a mistake that we in corporate America often have, say that our own team members wake up in the morning and say, boy, I'm so excited. The company made another penny a share. Yeah, Nobody right. gives a What is it that drives people? And how do you get them to see it in their interest? And one of the greatest joys I have are the number of lives. I'm talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or more who've reached out to me and said, I helped them to learn in ways they hadn't learned before. And so I would share with you one more construct that we have in the book, Mark. It's the difference between means, ends, and byproducts. And I tell it by way of a story. A friend of mine is a type 1 diabetic. His goal in life is to stay alive as long as you and I, Mark. But he can't make that happen. It's a byproduct. As Viktor Frankl wrote about happiness, happiness is a byproduct. You can't make it. What was his end? My friend's end was to keep his blood sugar between 80 and 180. When he does that, he has life. The means to that is diet, exercise, and insulin control. Business is the same thing. Value creation is a wonderful byproduct when you build something better. What's the end? Building a better alternative for our guests. Literally, that they walk past your competitors and come to you. And when I did that, there was such joy in the creative process of doing it, figuring it out, and actually getting it done. And so to me, I never spent my time on the value creation. You can't make it happen. I spent my time on the means and the end, being a better competitive alternative.
1: So let's take all of that and help our audience. So tell us about being the CEO of a company the size of Panera and what insights you can give us about how you spend your time and especially your energy that many leaders might not know. Yeah, well, as you imagine from our earlier discussion, I
2: have tended to recognize that a business is, is simply a small society and we get to allocate time, treasure, talent. We get to allocate all of that. And one of the things that I did, for example, was time. Time is the, is the arteries of an organization. And the key to getting anything done in a large organization is getting the right people in the room at the right time. And so I organized the calendar of the entire company literally around our key initiatives are the key things we said we wanted to get done to create the kind of organization we thought we would respect. And so one of the things that we go into in this book a great deal is how do you do it? How do you run a large company and get it done? How do you think about the issue of when to transform and how to transform? How do you think about what you spend your time on? I have a view about being CEO. And I think of it often a little bit like being president of the United States. As president of the United States, you get a lot of things done, but you can't get much done. And you think about each president and how many meetings they go to, how many events they attend, how many ceremonial things that they're involved in. And yet each one of them is remembered for one, two, or three things. You can go back and you can think about George Bush in and 9-11. And you can go to Obama and you can think about Obamacare you can go to Trump and you can think about, you know, January 6th, maybe you can go up. Right. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Trump. I get, a, what
1: I get your point though.
2: Yeah. yeah. You and here's, here's, but here's, here's the real things,
1: but yes, here's you're the right. Thing. Right.
2: What are the things that I, as a CEO, if I get through all the yappity yap and all the stuff coming at me and all the things demanding of me, what in two years and five and seven, are they going to say Ron shake? And the people at my company got done during those two and three years. And if I can stay focused on those few
1: things that are going to really matter, if I can keep my organization disciplined on it, I got a shot at getting them done. Obviously, I don't need to applaud anything you've done. The book is going to sell well, and you've done prohibitively well, independent of this conversation. But I am struck by The way you approach the world is rather unique. You've reframed the stress of all the negativity that comes with running a company, and you don't even have to be running a company to experience that kind of stress. And you say, Hey, it's all part of it. I'm learning, I'm enjoying observing people. I mean, you're approaching it from that point of view. But then you're saying, In the big picture, if we chunk up, like, what do I want to be remembered for independent of all the time I spend talking to people and visiting stores and picking menus and all the things that come with it? Like, what are the big rocks? I hate that expression, but yeah, that's what you're all about. And obviously, it served you really well. Yeah, and we got it done. And by the way, one of the things I'm proudest about in, you know, people
2: talk about Panera. And I ran it for 37 years. I ran as a public company CEO for 27 years longer than Cal Ripken played baseball. Hmm. And over the last two decades of that public company, we delivered annualized returns of 25%, twice Starbucks, four times Chipotle. And somebody told me the other day we actually beat Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. That's the stuff people always talk about. That's not the stuff that matters to me. What matters to me is we actually figured some things out. We learned and then got it done. I go back and I think about where I started. I started with a little cookie store in Boston and then a French bakery that we merged into. And we figured out that the action wasn't in selling croissant and bread, but using the bread and croissant to sell sandwiches. And that became a bakery cafe. And that led to a public offering of au bon Pen. And then the second thing we figured out along the way was the power of what is now called fast casual. In the early 90s, the alternatives were fine dining and fast food. And I can remember we traveled the country for two years trying to listen with empathy. And you could see that these consumers, one out of three of them, held their noses when they went into fast food. Fast food had become self-service gasoline stations. People wanted something more. They wanted to feel good about what they ate. They wanted to feel some sense of themselves. And we began to say if we offered food people wanted. If we create environments that engage them, if it was served by people that cared, we could change the currencies. The currencies of fast food was a lot of food for not a lot of money. The currency of what we came to call specialty food or fast casual was to really serve an experience that elevated your sense of self, your self-esteem. That was the second major learning that occurred in the early 90s. Panera became the poster child of that. And ultimately, it grew into what is now a $100 billion category of the restaurant industry. And I think back and say, wow, I did that. I mean, I feel like, wow, I figured it out. And I figured it out with some of my friends and partners. And it was so wonderful. You could feel it and your mind goes off. And then third, third major transformation when Panera was growing by the late 90s, it was one of four divisions in a large public company. And I recognized it had the potential to be a nationally dominant brand. And I was with a friend. This is a really powerful paradigm transformation for me. And I was basically feeling bummed. And I was saying to myself, oh, my God, this thing has this potential. We're going to screw it up. My friend looked at me and said, Ron, what would you do if Panera owned all those other divisions, if it owned Obon Pen, and Bon Pen bon International, and the manufacturing company, not the other way around? I said, if I had any strength, any power, I would monetize all those other assets, take the capital. Take the very best people and go down there myself and help this thing become nationally dominant. And, you know, I thought about it and it was like this switch in my head. And I spent the next two or three months sitting with it. And then I always said, this is the right way to go. And I actually sold all of the other divisions of the company except Panera and left us with that one division and renamed the public company. And again, for that year in which we were selling all those other divisions, Mark, it was the worst year of my life. Obon Pem was my first child, and I love those people. And the funny thing is, along the way, people say, to you know, you could have bought our stock for a penny on the dollar back then in 1999 for what it ultimately okay. sold for. And people say to me all the time, Ron, why didn't you tell me? And I look at them and go, buddy, I was telling you, nobody wanted to listen. And that's part of the reality, to see it and feel it when nobody has yet gotten there. And that was the third transformation, and it worked. And by 2009, Panera was well over a 1,000 stores. And I have this other side to me. I want to help fix the world. And I stepped down to do some political stuff. And around 2009, and by 2010 and 11, I had written a vision for how I would compete with Panera if I weren't part of Panera. One thing led to another. And again, that vision led to a path Transformed Panera, the guy who had taken over from me, a very dear friend named Bill Morton. We had worked together for two decades. Bill said, hey, Ron. He said, come on in and help me here. I did the prototype. One thing led to another. Bill ended up not being able to travel. I ended up coming back as CEO and I put in place what was one of the largest transformations ever done in this industry, which was rooted in digital and loyalty and clean food and channel. And it was horrible. I had activists along the way, people attacking me, people quitting. Because whenever you're going through transformation, you know, it's harder before it gets better. And it's that tension. But ultimately, you could see it work. And there was a tremendous gratification in getting
1: there. So let me interrupt here. and I have a whole bunch of questions I want to make sure I get to here. And I want to understand what you intended to do, what you actually did to elevate self-esteem. You're elevating the customer's self-esteem by buying a sandwich in your store. So I want to understand, what did you do? And how did you understand that it was a feeling that you were trying to get to? And then in the same breath, tell me what you did for your employees to make them buy into this and to want to deliver something that was unique in terms of service and you know, their engagement, their loyalty, their commitment to this whole brand. What did you do specifically to support that?
2: Yeah, let's start with the employees. And we would refer to them as team members. I often think part of the role of a CEO, of a leader of a business, is a little like a parish priest or a rabbi. You have to put context around it for people. Where are we coming from? Where are we? And where are we trying to get to? And the truth of the matter is, most people want to be part of something that makes a difference in the lives of other people. They don't really care whether you make any money or not. What matters to them is being part of something they're proud of, something that they get positive comments from people about. And so we, we really tried to build something that our own team members could be proud of with their family, with their friends, when they went to work. And we tried to help them understand where we were coming from, where we were at any given moment, and what needed to happen in the future. In addition, something else we believe in, and I wrote on extensively in the book, is really, we used to call a joint venture or partner manager, in which we cut our general managers in for a percent of the profits of the store. We committed to them. We'd keep them in place for a period of time, years, and we'd let them run the business. Think of it as a company-owned franchise. And again, powerful model. I want to share To me, the way that works best is when we're all winning. And I was trying to find ways in which my team members felt they were winning. They were winning because this was something that had meaning to them. They were getting positive comments on, and it was meaningful to them because they were personally able to build some financial security as part of it. And they felt a sense of pride of being part of this thing. It was great for everybody. So, all right, what was the first part of your question, Mark? <laughs> Sorry, I got no, it. That's
1: okay. So thank you for that. And the question I had has to do with this language of elevating the self-esteem of your customers. Like that was your yes. that was your business plan. How did you discover that? What does it mean? What did you actually do to make that happen? We literally wrote it out. We spent a year putting language around
2: what it was that needed to happen every day how we went to market, how we touched the customer such that we were delivering a unified experience for the guests. And what did that mean? It meant real food, not processed sandwich meat. It was real meat. You know, we did antibiotic-free chicken. We we're the first people to do it. And people would say to me, why did you do it? The truth of the matter was, I wanted real chicken. I wanted it to taste like chicken. And most of the stuff that was available tasted like, like anything but real chicken. You started with real food. And for us, the standard was the food had to be as good as the bread. And then we secondly said our bread was our sole passion, and expertise. We had to deliver on that. And then we said we had to create an environment people wanted to sit in. Energy came from your environments. And we want to create those kind of environments. To me, there was nothing greater and more satisfying than creating an environment people wanted to come and use the free Wi-Fi. It brought energy to the environment, got everybody charged up. It was great. If we couldn't sell them something when they were already sitting there, shame on us. And then fourth, we wanted to create a sense that this was part of a lifestyle. It wasn't simply food. It was an experience. And the humanity of our people, the humanity of how we dealt with you was powerful. I can't tell you how many instances I had of people calling me and saying the difference that Panera made or any of our existing businesses today, Kava, Tate, Life Alive, Level 99, make in their lives. That to me is what's gratifying. You know, in the end, I'm gonna I'm gonna share with you something and you'll appreciate it. There is no legacy. Someday I'm gonna be gone and nobody's gonna care. What matters is what I do that I respect. And I really, I really believe that. And so I find it so satisfying. I always have, when I can touch the lives of customers, when I can touch the lives of team members, when I can actually make a difference for the investors who invest in us. It's like I'm delivering. And
1: that's a great, great experience. Well, I appreciate the fact that you're even focused on something more than shareholders and quarterly earnings, honestly. I mean, you can feel that you genuinely care about all of your stakeholders, another term I don't like, but it represents what we're talking about. You also mention empathy a lot in your book. So that's really what we're talking about. And I don't hear that from a lot of CEOs. I don't hear a lot from anybody in business. But you believe it's the key to innovation, and I absolutely agree with you. So... Tell us what you specifically mean by empathy and why you think leaders should actively cultivate it.
2: Well, to me, empathy is about being able to walk in other people's moccasins and appreciate their experiences. They may be different than yours, but it's to be able to have that sensitivity and sensibility. And so if we're doing anything for the guest, for the customer, it starts with a sensibility of what matters to them. It may even be that they don't know it, but what's going to matter to them? What is it they're buying? Like Clay Christensen wrote, you know, what is the job they're hiring you for and how do we deliver that? That was the genesis of Fast Casual. And then, secondly, you know, once we go beyond what is the experience they're hiring you for, you go to our own people and, you know, what is it that's going to make a difference in their lives and how do we accomplish that? And so, I guess what we're really trying to say here is empathy is about trying to feel and hear others. Now, here's the key to empathy. It doesn't happen quickly. It takes time. It takes patience. One of the things I think we in corporate America do foolishly is believe everything is about the action. And so we move quickly to action. To me, it's about figuring out what's going to matter and then acting. That's why the coda for the book is tell the truth, which is about telling yourself the truth. Know what matters, which is really about listening and empathy, and then no BS. Get it done. If you can get to eighty percent, you're doing great.
1: Well, you have a an empathy for your customer, and you call it drive for specialness. Like this is what your organization, your employees, were motivated to embody. And so, what does that mean? A drive for specialness, and how do you get rank and file? people working in fast casual to
2: care listen our associates that is the people on the counter in a fast casual restaurant don't work for ron shake or panera or any of that that's nonsense they work for their general manager in that store they work for the person they see every day the person who either treats them with respect and dignity or gives them a hard time so job number one if you're going to move tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people is to ensure that the frontline supervisors they deal with are people of quality, people that care, people that are able to separate the wheat from the chaff, take care of the good people, get rid of the bad people and move that organization forward. So I start with that. And then I'm continually thinking of myself like a parish priest or rabbi, trying to give people a sense of where we are in the journey. So often in business, it feels to me like a photograph. I'm just giving you a reaction to what happened yesterday. What were your numbers? When the reality is, there's somewhere we're coming from and somewhere we got to. That's where we are today. And then depending on what choices we make, and most importantly, what choices you as a team member make individually in that restaurant, where we're going to end up. And I try to paint a vision of where we could end up, where we want to end up. And ask people to join in that. And you know what's amazing, Mark? So many of our frontline employees, they're the people that really care. They're not the cynics. The cynics are the corporate executives. The folks that are on the front lines, they so want to be part of something. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're paid so much. It's that they want to have a sense of self-respect and worth when they go to work. And when we help create that kind of environment, we are actually taking care of ourselves. Because they end up giving far more. I've often thought most employees in distributed businesses like fast food, but most employees give you 30 or 40 percent of what they're capable of. And the trick of management is how to help people see it's in their interest to give you far more of what they're capable of,
1: 80 or 90 or 100 percent. And when they do, the whole thing gets better. 100 percent agree. All right, go back to drive for specialness with your customers. Yeah, I mean, same thing. We got to stand for something. We don't want every customer.
2: We want our target customer to choose us. It's called being a better competitive alternative. We want our customer to walk across the street, walk past 20 other competitors in this uh, you dog-eat-dog know, dog world called the restaurant industry, and choose us as the best alternative for something. So in order to be special and distinctive for that target customer, we better understand what it is they want, and we better be clear why we're giving it to them. I have an expression, this business is like dirt farming. You're going to get your market share, you'll get some customers, but you're never going to make any money. It's a really difficult business unless you stand for something, unless you're the best alternative for certain customers.
1: I love that. That's an upcoming theme of ours, but standing for something is a fundamental component, I believe, of truly effective leadership and taking some risk by doing it. You know, you're alienating some people. Yes, but I'm going to go further. It's also a fundamental element as parents, individuals, you know, as,
2: as spouses. What do we stand for? What do we care about? What really matters? And even my relationship with myself, what am I going to respect that I did? As a country, we, we salute those veterans that have given the ultimate sacrifice. I often think, how did they get to that place where they could do that? That's such a powerful gift to all of us. They put their lives on the line for us. And why is it they did that? And my guess
1: is a lot of it is about self-respect. 100%. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about yes. is this notion that you're a contrarian. You said that experience has taught me to be cautious when things seem to be going well. And I honestly think that's very wise and insightful. But again, how did you learn this and how did you apply it? It just makes sense to me. When everybody's going one way, I
2: don't know that that's the right way to go. It feels to me like they're always taking it to extremes. And I'll tell you by way of a story. In the early 90s, there were boom, boom days. And everybody was growing, borrowing money, building as much as they could. Costs of construction were going up. But everybody was rocking and rolling. And everybody was feeling good. It was you know, Web 1.0 and all those days. And then around 08 and oh nine, all of that kind of blew up. And then everybody got negative. I will tell you that when everybody was, was in the go-go days, I harbored our resources. I slowed it down because I realized we were just chasing what everybody else was chasing. And then when that recession hit in 08 and 09 and everybody got negative, well, guess what? We still had a great concept you know, the cost of development went down, the cost of real estate was going down, and real estate was locked in for 15 years, it was at that point that we increased our store growth. We actually increased it materially. It was the time to grow when everybody wasn't. And simultaneously, during that recession, everybody in a public restaurant company was running around bragging about the fact we're pulling costs out of the P&L. Sales are going down, but we're pulling costs out faster. When you pull costs out, to me, that's a tax on the customer. That means your tables are going to be dirtier. That means your lines are going to be longer. Somebody's got to pay, and it's the guest. It was at that time when everybody was ripping costs out, I said, my God, my job is to build competitive advantage. If I want to build competitive advantage, this is the time to put money into the guest experience. We increased our investment in our labor. And lo and behold, we saw our comp store sales, important measure in the restaurant business, go up the mid single digits when everybody else had sales retreating because we gave a better experience. Both of those comments, both increasing the development rate and investing into the guest experience in a moment of weakness are about contrarian thinking and realizing we're playing the long game.
1: Was there any bravery in that or was it just your conviction tied to history? Well, Mark, uh, bravery is a strong word. I'm not going into combat. I don't mean it like that. You know, you know what I mean? It was their courage there. Did you have to argue with other people on the board that this makes sense? Yes,
2: absolutely. No question. The truth of the matter is most of us want to follow whatever is the prevailing way of thinking at that time. It feels safe. And I think it's hard, you know. When I went through these massive transformations, selling all the other divisions but Panera and, you know, massive transformation of Panera in the early 2011 to 2017, I had everybody and their brother attack me. And I had activists and I had people quitting because they weren't sure what was going to happen. And, you know, I often would think to myself, Vince Lombardi has an expression I love, he said he never lost a game. He just ran out of time. I was worried I wasn't going to have time. And, you know, Yeah. And I used to get up in front of 5,000 people at a meeting and say, We're going to go this way. If you're on a teleprompter, when you're speaking, you kind of can float in and out. And I can remember thinking to myself, By God, I hope I'm right here. Because if I'm not, I'm taking a lot of people whose mortgages are betting on this, their kids' college. I better be right here. And sure, it's not bravery, but there's moments of self doubt. But even in the face of self doubt, you got to go forward, you have no choice. Because self doubt is part of it, you don't know till you know, and nothing is done till it's done. And so, if you call that
1: courage or bravery, fine. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. I know there was a, some arm wrestling going on to make your point, but contrarian means you're going against what everybody else is doing, so there's going to be some friction. And Mark, right? Mark, here's here's the deal. <laughs> I know in my my view. These businesses all are simple
2: and logical. Build a better competitive alternative. People will come to you. You'll do fine. Everything is about focusing on that. And the reality is that in any business that I've ever run, everything we do is done by intent. Our business is the last vestiges of a small society that we get to build. And I try to make sure all the pieces add up to what we're trying to accomplish. What's the end? And when I do that, the byproduct is value creation. It's not courageous. It's just sensible. And I think way too many of us in business do what everybody else is doing and don't figure out what's going to matter to the guest or the team member or even, you know, to yourself.
1: Amen. Totally agree. It defines a critical element of why you're so successful. All of this. So thank you. So, Ron, we're going to take a quick break here from our conversation and move into something that we call the heartbeat round. Principally, just to get to know a little bit more about you personally, I'm going to ask you several questions and ask you to answer them quickly, in other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game?
2: Absolutely, Mark. As soon as I swallow my coffee, let's go.
1: All right, here we go. Cultural value
2: every organization should have? Um, Mastery. Most of us talk about getting things
1: done. I'm about mastering a few things really well. One piece of advice you'd give your younger self beyond the one that you just gave us? Stay focused on what matters to you. What are you going to respect down the road? Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true.
2: Those that do a better job for the customer are always going to win.
1: Well-known organization you most admire for their overall culture and respect for employee well-being and belonging. Chick-fil-A. An author or philosopher who most influenced your leadership thinking. Uh, Clay Christensen. Powerful. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Empathy. Favorite Bruce Springsteen song? Working on a dream. I closed every one of my speeches with that. That's how I used to think about my work. (laughs) First app you check in the morning? Uh, My health metrics in the uh, New York Times. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? To respect the people that work with you. Your greatest fear? Letting people down. Leader of any era you hold in the highest regard?
2: Those that were faced with extraordinary challenges and we're able to have the strength to go through it. Uh, Churchill, for example.
1: The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris. The quality you admire most in other people. The ability to listen. And your best synonym for the word heart. Willing to take the risk, So Wonderful. Solid answers. Very good answers. Thanks for going through this with me, Ron. Thank you very much. Before you go, I want to ask you one final question. Sure. Is there one last leadership insight specifically, that you would like to leave our audience noodling and thinking about after they've finished listening to this podcast? Is there something that you can impart that perhaps they wouldn't get anywhere else? Well, yeah, I'd I'd throw this out to you and to your listeners. You know, one of the things that I've learned
2: over time, you know, as somebody, I try to think hard and I work hard and I try to do it well. But one of the things that I came to realize only with the time is to trust myself, trust my feelings, trust what I feel and what I think. Too often we get pulled by everybody else pulling us in every direction. We get, you know, oh, my God, if I could just think on it a little bit longer, it will all work out. I'll have a better answer. Just look at yourself and trust yourself. And I know that that for me, it took me decades to get to that place to really trust myself. But if I could talk to a younger Ron, that would be what I tell him.
1: That's fantastic wisdom. And on behalf of my audience, front, thank you so very much. And best of success with the book. Yes, thank you very much for doing this, Mark. Take care of yourself. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Before we go, I want to say thank you for listening. Our show now ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. And it's clearly, obviously, because you're listening and you're promoting it to others. And this is what's made it happen. And we are so very grateful. Our hope, of course, is that we continue to grow our audience, influence, and ranking. We believe this is the moment in time when the world is ready for a new brand of workplace leadership. And if you don't already know, I post frequently on both LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm not sure I'll ever get comfortable calling it X. And I invite you to join me on both places for conversation. And I'd also love to meet you in person should you ever have an event and need a speaker. I'm willing and excited to go anywhere in the world and you can direct inquiries to me on my website. I especially want to thank Chevron for being a wonderful partner and sponsor and to its managers and employees in 50 different countries. And finally, I want to thank all the people who helped me create this podcast, including Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yacht, Anna Boynton, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. Until next time, I close things out with my two constant and consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you again for listening and signing off for now.